change of events had been jarring, to say the least. A circumstantial whiplash of sorts from Palm Sunday to the hours we just read about on the cross. Really, the week couldn't have started out any better, at least as far as the followers of Jesus were concerned, as far as His own disciples were concerned. The the man who had healed diseases, the man who had exorcised demons, the man who had fed the multitude and walked on water and calmed the storm and raised the dead, had been ushered into the city as a king. Palm branches laid before him, hosannas shouting out, blessed be the name of of our God. Yes, this indeed was a triumphal entry, and his men must have thought, this is it. Now we are on the brink. The, The oppression of the Romans will be overthrown The burdensome yoke of the religious leaders will be removed. The son of David has entered Zion, and now he will rule and reign as king. And even the next couple of days only seem to reinforce for them these moments. Jesus asserted his authority in the temple. He put religious leaders in their place. Now, these days seem to, be, seem to be the beginning of the return of the promised land to God's people. But the tide begins to change. Circumstances begin to evolve or devolve. Those who otherwise would be bitter enemies of one another, now find they all have one enemy in common. And so they conspire. And they have only one outcome. They don't want to slap on the wrist. They don't want time in prison. Their one and only desire. They had been embarrassed enough by this man. They were shocked enough by what they thought was his blasphemy. Death was the only thing suitable for him. And so death was what they pursued. And the power begins to shift. And unbeknownst to the other disciples, one of their own had conspired with the enemies of Jesus. However, let us not think that Jesus is some hapless victim of circumstance. Do not assume for one moment that all of these events are transpiring because of the clever tactics of religious leaders and Jewish enemies, or that this is happening because of the strong arm and power of the Roman government, of Pilate and of Caesar. If this is a chess match, it's already checkmate, because Jesus is in charge of all of it. All of this is happening not to Jesus, but because of Him. This is all happening on purpose. This this is all 
a carefully orchestrated series of events, details being executed with precision. Even as Jesus gathers on that Passover night and transforms it into the Lord's Supper, He knows the hours that are about to come to Him. He knows what the cross means. Even as they reconvene in the Garden of Gethsemane and hundreds of Roman soldiers descend upon them, Jesus knows this is all going perfectly according to plan. In fact... We've heard these words. How often, did you notice? How often did the phrase show up, and these things happened to fulfill what the Scripture had said? And these things happened to fulfill what Jesus had said. It is said over and over and over again. And even as we come to this part of the story... These hours in which Christ suffered and bled and died, even in these moments, the divine will is what is operating. In fact, we heard it in those very words in John chapter 19 and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, Even as we find ourselves in this moment where where Jesus is about to accomplish the work designed for Him, we see this language that lets us know this is the authority of God, the authority of Christ on display. It's not Roman power. It's not Jewish politics. It's Jesus Jesus is not being executed. Jesus is not getting swept up in things. Jesus is offering Himself as a sacrifice. As Jesus suffers on the cross, He's doing the one thing for us that we could not do for ourselves. He is bearing in His body God's wrath against sin, but not His sin. He's a substitute. It's ours. It's my sin. It is because of my depravity. It is because of my rebellion. It is because of the deadness that is in me that I need Jesus, perfectly righteous, to offer a perfect sacrifice that perfectly meets God's obligations. And this suffering then reaches this apex moment. This moment, predetermined by God, according to His plan, being fulfilled just as Scripture says. And there are some important moments that transpire here. Moments right here at the end. He has been suffering for hours, but now the time has come. Jesus says and does some important things. We just read it. Jesus, knowing that all these things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Seems like an odd statement to make. I don't mean because He wouldn't have been thirsty. I'm just thinking, what's the point? 
He's dying. Why tell me? We know this. Of course he would thirst. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this one statement, but at the very least, it is this. Jesus leaves no doubt. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Gods don't get thirsty, but humans do. You see, if Jesus was God, but only appeared to be man, he doesn't need a drink. It is because he was fully God and fully man that Jesus utters the words, I thirst. But this isn't the critical moment. No, the the critical moment comes right here with these last few words. In fact, I would contend that this is a moment of authority and of power and of divinity that matches anything else he had done. From the miracles he had performed, to his interactions with the demons, to even that day, standing before the grave of Lazarus and shouting out, come forth, I would contend what he is about to do now, what he is about to say now, demonstrates he is in perfect control of all of the circumstances. His power and authority is on profound display as Jesus pulls himself up one more time, hoisting himself on the nails that are through his wrists, the searing pain coursing through his body, lungs burning for oxygen, nearly collapsed after hanging on the cross for hours, a heart about ready to burst, and it is in this moment that Jesus lifts himself up, and the text says this, he said, now understand, it it is he said. Jesus at this moment does not whisper. Jesus at this moment does not whimper. Jesus at this moment is not giving the indiscernible babblings of a man whose brain lacks oxygen and blood. This is divinity on display as Jesus raises himself up and with a shout of clarity and certainty that resounded beyond just the confines of the cross itself, with words that echo even down to the temple and shake the ground itself. The Son of God declares, it is finished. And with these words, we have some of the most profound moments and words of Scripture. With these three words, it is finished. It means that the sacrifice is done Jesus has not only offered payment for debt, it has been accepted. You see, the phrase, it is finished, can also be translated as paid in full. They found that word actually stamped on bills of sale, on debts that have been owed and repaid from the first century. It means no more price need to be paid. Debt paid in full. As Jesus died on the cross, the moment was determined by the divine will that the sacrifice had reached its sufficient point, and Jesus cried out, payment has been made, God has accepted it, and that which is necessary has been finished. It has been completed. The sacrifice has been offered. The sacrifice has been accepted. My debt 
has been paid. It has been paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilt. This blood sacrifice fulfilled all that God demanded of us. But we're not done yet. There is yet another moment that I would contend is of profound power and authority. Because John goes on and records for us these words, And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. All of the Gospels describe this moment. All of them describe this one moment where after uttering his last cry, giving his spirit to his Father, the Bible says he dies. Understand, he did not die at the hands of a Roman executioner. His death was not the death of a man who'd committed a crime against the state. His death was not a death of a man that Jews had claimed was a blasphemer and deserved death. No, no, this is not what is happening. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He gave it. And when it was done, he died. This was the will of God. Because this was the only way to be saved. This had to happen. And in fact, this moment was of such profound power that the other gospel writers record some really interesting things. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 54. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, This truly was the Son of God. In fact, Mark will go on to be more specific. That one centurion standing at the foot of the cross was most amazed by two things, that Jesus was able to say anything. This was a man who had seen hundreds, if not thousands, die. He'd never seen anybody like this. And he had never seen anyone die on their own terms. Crucifixion was designed to extend the torture. At times, there are records that it took days before people died, all skillfully happening at the hands of these men, but not with Jesus, because these men were not going to take His life. And so when Jesus cried out, and then when Jesus gave up His own life, it is in this moment that one of the centurions said, this must be the Son of God. This is no mere man we are dealing with. The text indicates that they were afraid because these Romans knew power. They understood authority. They had seen it. They had experienced it. They had delivered it. But they had seen nothing like this man. No, this was Jesus doing what only Jesus could do. 
And all of this was done because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. All of this was done because we were unable to do anything about our own depravity. This was all done because we could not achieve right standing with God on our own. We needed one who was fully God and fully man. We needed a perfect priest and we needed a perfect sacrifice. And that is why as we gather on this day, on Good Friday, that we do so confident that we have been redeemed. We have been made right with God because in Him is a sufficient sacrifice for salvation. It is indeed Good Friday because God's goodness is on full display. It is God coming to those who do not deserve it to give them what they could not possibly earn so that they might know His grace and mercy and forever be trophies to the glory of that grace. It is indeed a good Friday. And so we will leave here tonight after we finish our service together with a mix of emotions. I mean, our hearts undoubtedly are heavy as we have been confronted and will continue to think about and sing about what was required in order for our sins to be forgiven. Church, I do fear that far too often we speak far too lightly and we treat far too lightly the depravity into which we were born. We do not take as seriously as we should the potential for our own flesh. This is why the cross is important for us to come before. The cross forces us to see ourselves for who we really are, for what God actually demands and what God actually thinks about our sin. If you want to know how wretched our sin is in the eyes of God, it required God to die. No greater statement need be made than that. But the cross also humbles us because we see the profound and unconditional love of God to save a people who didn't deserve it and could not earn it. This is a somber evening. It is a sobering evening. But let's also conclude this moment with some honesty, because we know the rest of the story. It is heavy, and it should be. The service should feel heavy. That is its purpose. But yet, we cannot help but gaze ahead. We are aware of the heaviness of Friday, but we also know that Sunday is coming. We know what they did not. Oh, they should have, because He told them, but they didn't. But we do. And we know The pain of death will give way to the hope of life. However, though we will celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Lord on Sunday, let us not be so quick to stand before an empty tomb that we don't take these moments to stand, maybe to kneel, maybe to utterly humble ourselves, before an empty cross. Because Jesus said, it is finished.
No more price need be paid. No more suffering need be done. No more wrath need be poured out. It was satisfied in Jesus. And let us glory in the goodness of God and the goodness of our Savior and what He has done for us, what we remember on this day. Let's pray. Merciful God, God of glory and grace, we do humble ourselves before You and we do thank You for what we have read, for the truth we have sung, what we will continue to sing, what we have reflected on here tonight, and that is this profound moment of what You have done for us in Christ. We thank You for the saving work of Jesus. We thank You for the sufficient work of Jesus. We thank You that His sacrifice to the point of death was enough, enough to save to save us from our sin, sin that we have done, that we are doing, that we will do, and to know that this saving grace secures us for eternity. We thank You for this good day. Good not in that the Son of God had to die, but good in that He willingly gave Himself so that we might know life. And Father, let us be humbled then before a cross on which a Savior no longer hangs because His work has been finished and we have been saved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.